You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the TaxSmart REI podcast. As you may have heard, we're relaunching the TaxSmart Insiders community this year after making it better than ever. Not only are you going to be able to get a reliable tax advice from our team of real estate tax experts, but you're also going to be able to join master classes, success paths, and much more to help you build your portfolio or scale your portfolio in a tax-efficient manner. So we're really excited about that. And to celebrate today, we're going to be answering questions from the TaxSmart Insiders private community, as well as our Facebook group. So if you want to learn more about how to become a TaxSmart Insider, head over to www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash free gift, and you're going to get an awesome free gift while supplies last for joining the community. All right. So the first question we have is actually going to be from our TaxSmart Investors Facebook group. Then we're going to move over to the Insiders group in 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 a few minutes. So uh, there's a lot of interesting questions taking place. And the first one is, and uh, this is actually a point of confusion for a lot of people, and that is, are dividends considered passive income? Ah, good one. They feel passive. Right. They yeah. certainly do feel passive, right? I actually see a lot of, um, there's this whole like dividend Twitter. Uh, I've been like on Twitter for the past year. I mean, I've been on Twitter for a long time, but. Over the past year, I've been trying to like build up my Twitter account. And I've noticed that there's this whole like there's influencers that talk about dividends. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a big strategy for some people. They, they invest in dividend stocks because yeah. they want to have income. And also some people don't believe in appreciation or don't believe that appreciation should be relied upon. And that when you get a dividend, you know, you're getting paid. So they'll go find companies and stocks that continually raise dividends year over year. So basically almost almost guaranteeing the fact that you're going to have that dividend there for you, and they'll go and invest in those companies and collect that dividend. Uh, so. there, there, there's this one guy that always tweets out what he would do if he won whatever Mega Millions or Powerball money. So like whenever it gets to the hundreds of millions or billions, he starts tweeting out like once a week, here's what I would do if I won the billions and and what he does well, first what he does me as a tax person i'm like oh you're not accounting for any of the taxes <laughs> so he, he's like the cash value is 700 million and i would invest all 700 million in this and i'm like no you wouldn't because you got to pay taxes first <laughs> mister but he always like like i don't understand the dividend investing and maybe it's just because i don't understand equities as well as i do real estate but I mean, his whole like thing is I'm going to invest it. I'm going to invest $700 million into this dividend stock that pays me $14 million a year. And I'm like, why would you do that? <laughs> you are losing money to inflation. It makes zero sense. But he has 150,000 followers. And everybody always jumps on like, yeah, man, that's like what I would do too. And I'm like, oh, gosh, hopefully you wouldn't. <laughs> hopefully you would like seek a higher return than yeah. 1.5% or 2%. The first thing I did, man, if I won, if I won that, I would first thing I do is go f- find a family office company and start a family office and and sort oh, through for sure. So that's the literally the first thing I would do, or maybe the first thing I would do is just park it somewhere like the S and P five hundred just to be safe because yeah. you know it probably ain't going nowhere, and then go talk to the family office. Okay, where should I allocate this money? I don't know that it's wise to make all that decisions with that type of money 
without some assistance from people who probably have experience allocating large sums of capital like that. So yeah, there's no, there's no repercussions for these people either. Cause they're not, they're not registered investment advisors. They don't have any licenses so they can say whatever they want. Yeah. On, no repercussions. Whereas your actual qualified professionals can't go out on Twitter saying stuff like that. Oh yeah. This is my understanding. It's so stringent. It's so stringent. Um, you have to be very careful with what you say. So just be careful with what you, you know, take everything you hear on Twitter from people who are not a qualified professionals with a grain of salt because because they might not know what they're talking about. If you go and follow that guy's advice on Twitter, you would end up owing the IRS a very large tax bill <laughs> and uh, you would not be very happy when you found that out. So you would um, also be in a very poor cash flow position compared to the equity invested. But that's beside the point. I apologize for taking us on this tangent. Thank you, everybody, for sticking around. Let's answer the actual question. Are dividends passive income or, or why are dividends not considered passive income? Because they feel passive. I throw my money into the equity right, to whatever stock, whatever company, and I get dividends back. That is the rich dad, poor dad definition of passive income. Right. But it's not right. the IRS's definition of passive income. Right. So th- there is a code section within section 469. I don't have it off the top of my head. However, it does say, and you can go and check it for yourself if you don't believe me, it's in there. Uh, it says that basically income from dividend stocks, et cetera, et cetera, are considered um, non-passive income is effectively what it says. I don't know why it's like that, or I have an idea of why, but Congress, when they wrote this, don't want people taking passive losses from their real estate, et cetera, against these stocks. So they put that in there, basically saying that income from these sources is considered non-passive. So that's the reason why it's very black and white. You know, what, the intent behind it, you could argue, but it's very clear, very simple. It's not. It's right in the task code. It's very clear. So while it is passive yeah. in reality, maybe for you, it is is not passive, at least as far as the internal revenue code is concerned. Yeah. So it's it's under section 469E, I believe, and it says not from a passive activity. So that's where you can find what Tom was just talking about. And I believe you actually have it pulled up. So if you want to read us that that snippet, that would be great. Yeah. It says certain income and not treated as income from a passive activity. All right. And It includes any of the gross income from interest, dividends, annuities, royalties that are not derived in the ordinary course of a trade or business. Okay, there you go. So what that is saying is that if you invest in, I don't even know the dividends. (laughs) J&J, you invest in Johnson & Johnson. You invest in Johnson & Johnson. They cut you a check. It's a dividend. That dividend is not from a passive activity. doesn't mean that it's not like, you know, it's not physically passive. I mean, it is. It's really passive. But. For the purposes of Section 469, a dividend is not from a passive activity. Now, for all of our non-tax listeners, which is the majority of you, all of our real estate folks that are listening to this, the reason that that is important is all rental properties are considered passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional or unless you are running like the short-term rental exception. Your rental real estate is going to be passive. And what Section 469 does is it effectively creates two buckets of income. It creates the passive income bucket and the non-passive income bucket. Your non-passive income is your W-2 income and income that you earn from a trade or business. But also that non-passive income is dividends, interest, capital gains, et cetera. All that sounds like it should be passive, but for the purposes of Section 469, all of that goes into that non-passive bucket. So in your passive bucket, you have rental real estate. And you have any trader business that you are an equity owner in, but you don't materially participate in. That's in your passive bucket. And effectively, what this bifurcation does 
is it reduces your ability to claim losses from your rental activities. Because if I invest in a rental property and use depreciation strategies to, to produce a large loss, a tax loss, then that tax loss is going to be passive unless I meet one of the exceptions to the passive activity rules. And that passive loss is going to be stuck in that passive bucket. But my dividends are going to be in my non-passive bucket. So the problem is, is I can't use my rental losses from my passive bucket to offset anything in my non-passive buckets, which my dividends are in. So what happens is I receive this dividend income or I, I receive interest from the bank um, and I can't use my rental losses to offset that income unless I meet one of the exceptions to the passive activity loss rules, which is again in section 469, which is what we're talking about right now. And we've talked a lot about the exceptions to the passive activity loss rules. So you can go check out prior episodes. We've got reps, real estate professional status. We've got short-term rental stuff. We've done very deep dives into all that. Yeah. So you can check those out on the episodes titled reps and STRs. Uh, you can dive into some of those exceptions there. Now, uh, speaking of short-term rentals, actually, we have our next question. And this person is buying a condo for a short-term rental that is 3.5 hours away from their home, and they currently manage a long-term and mid-term rental. The question is about qualifying for material participation on this short-term rental activity. They're using a remote management company to acquire tenants. However, they are arranging to communicate with cleaners and repair personnel, et cetera. Would they be able to meet the material participation requirement if they have a remote management company acquiring tenants and they're handling the rest? And this is a very interesting question. Oof. What do you think? I mean, look, the IRS, okay, they think that if you have property management, that you are not materially participating. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that you can't overcome that necessarily, which is very challenging to do so. Uh, you'd have to look at the time that the property management company is spending to acquire tenants versus all the rest of the time that you're taking to operate the property. Because it sounds like is that this property management company in question is not actually operating the property. They're merely acquiring tenants for you, whereas you're actually still responsible for the operations. That's what it sounds like he's saying in their agreement, you know, implicitly saying, because they're only acquiring tenants. So what you'd really have to do in this case, if you did want to make the case that you did materially participate, you'd have to meet one of the material participation tests, 500 hours. If you meet 500 hours or more, then you don't have to worry about how much time anybody else is spending. However, if you're like most short-term investors, you have one short-term rental, it's probably unlikely you're actually going to hit that 500 hour mark, at least in our very experience. Very unlikely. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's just very <laughs> challenging. So what is that? You're not going to do substantially everything because you got the, the management company acquiring tenants. So that leaves you with the 100-hour test, so you spend more than 100 hours on activity and no one other individual spends more time than you. So you'd have to have a bona fide time log of your time showing that you spent more than 100 hours on that activity and that your property management company, or in this case, whoever's acquiring the tenants for you, did not spend more time than you. And one more thing I'd want to add in there is you'd want to probably look at the agreement that you're signing with the management company and make sure that you are not delegating the day-to-day -day management to them. Because if you are delegating the day-to-day -day management, then the IRS is going to take that position that you are not material participating and you're really fighting an uphill battle. And just given everything that we see in tax court cases and the IRS ATG, it is likely that you would lose. Not saying it's 100%, but likely in that scenario. This was coming from the insider insiders group? This is coming from the Facebook group. Facebook group. Okay. Wow. We got some tax smart people in the Facebook group too. Uh, you should go join our tax smart Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash group slash tax smart investors. I think Right. If, if you are a new listener, 
everything you just said probably went over everybody's head. So <laughs> let's give some context to the new listeners who are not yet tax smart, but are aspiring to be tax smart. Okay. Why would this question even be asked? Let's start there. So one of the exceptions to the passive activity loss rules that is not necessarily a black and white exception is if you own and operate a short-term rental where the average period of customer use is seven days or less, it is not considered a, quote, rental activity under Section 469, which means that you do not need to qualify as a real estate professional in order to move your rental activity out of the passive bucket that I was describing earlier and put it into the non-passive bucket. And for all of our new listeners, we do want, typically, thanks to the time value of money, we do want to move rentals out of the passive bucket and put them into the non-passive bucket most of the time. The reason for that is if I can move my rental into the non-passive bucket where my other income is, my business income, W-2 income, spouse's income is, then I can use rental losses, tax losses, thanks to depreciation to offset that income. If I can't make that move, if my rental doesn't qualify for one of those exceptions, then it's stuck in the passive bucket and any tax loss that my rental real estate generates will be suspended and carried forward indefinitely. I cannot use it to offset my other income. It's not the end of the world, but that is typically where we see real estate investors go, oh, there's no tax benefits in real estate. I was lied to. It's like, hey, you're not lied to. You get to use those suspended passive losses at some point to offset future passive income that you might generate or gain on sale from a passive activity, but you can't use the passive losses from your rental real estate today to offset all of your other income that you were probably hoping to offset. So owning and operating a short-term rental is one way to do it. I would highly recommend that you go listen to our short-term rental episodes on this podcast because we go in detail on how to qualify for that exception. We're not going to do it here because we're not going to do it justice. We need like three hours to get it done. But this question is stemming from that discussion. And it's basically, if I have a property manager Am I still going to be able to meet the quantitative tests associated with this strategy and be able to utilize my short-term rental losses or the losses for my short-term rental activity? And so what Tom just described is if you have a property manager, it becomes infinitely harder to justify that you are materially participating. There are seven tests to material participation. You only need to meet one of those tests. They are quantitative tests, meaning that they are relatively black and white. So you can look at those seven tests, and as long as you meet one, you will be materially participating. So when Tom was saying 500 hours, significant participation, or significantly all your participation, uh, 100 hours more than anyone else, he was rifling through some of the material participation tests, uh, specifically three of the seven material participation tests is what he mentioned. So most of the investors that we are aware of use the 100 hours and more than anyone else material participation test. You have to spend 100 hours in the activity and you have to outwork everybody else that's working in the activity. So if you have a property manager uh, of any degree, you are going to have to track their time and you're going to have to outwork them and you're going to have to be able to prove that should you be audited and should you take it further and go to tax court. So to answer this question, Tom was totally right. So hopefully the person that asked the question is like, okay, nodding along, good. But I did want to add one more thing. Oftentimes in an audit, the IRS will, like if you're claiming, well, I do a lot of the property management, the IRS will ask to see what your management contract looks like with that vendor. So your management contract will need to be explicitly clear 
that they only solicit your tenants. They do not do any of the management. Right. And that's, and they only get paid to solicit tenants. They don't get paid to do anything else. And your accounting records will need to reflect that. So just something else to think about. Like you really want to button it all up from a documentation standpoint. And you got to think through contracts as well, because that can absolutely be requested to see if what you're saying on your time log is true in reality. So you can do it. I think that, you know, my own experience managing my short-term rental, I think that without the leasing component, those are valuable material participation hours that you are giving to somebody else. I would encourage you to, you know, not do that. I know there's a lot of, there's there's a lot of, there's several actually vacation rental property managers that listen to our podcast. They've reached out to me before. And so I, I don't say this to hurt their business by any means, but, you know, giving somebody a leasing fee when you can throw it up on VRBO and Airbnb relatively easily and relatively cheaply, still expensive, but relatively speaking, it's pretty solid business model. So I I would encourage you to kind of explore self-rental options, but I understand everybody's busy and, uh, you know. Yeah. And you know what? Speaking of the short-term rental options, you know, uh, so Brandon's actually going to be hosting a master class on Section 469, where he's going to be going in depth on the short-term rental loophole later on this quarter. So if you want to learn more about that, you want to see this master class, you want to join in on the conversation, go ahead and join the Tax Smart Insiders group. Again, you can go there, www.taxsmartinsiders.com slash free gift. And that's not all though. Uh, we're also bringing on a short-term rental investing expert, the co-author of Airbnb for Dummies, where he's going to share his secrets on what you can do to optimize your portfolio and scale your portfolio. So all that exciting stuff is taking place. If you're a short-term rental investor, you want to use the short-term rental loophole, you want to scale a portfolio, go check that out, www.taxmartinvestors.com slash free gift. But now back to the questions that we have at hand here. So this is actually from the TaxSmart Insiders Group. It's a pretty good question. So we are trying to qualify for reps this upcoming year. And uh, my wife is going to be able to do that. However, we are concerned if we're owning commercial property, they're trying to do it through a property management company, I'm sorry. And if they own commercial property contracts and she's actively working in the property management business on these commercial properties, can they qualify as a real estate professional using that? Uh, they're concerned around the fact that it's not residential property. So basically, okay. does managing commercial properties count as property a uh, property management business and help them qualify for the real estate. Oh, for sure. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 You're in the business of property management. You are, you're fine. However, you spouse, spouse is property manager. Is that what it is? Yeah. So basically do they own the rentals. You know, so basically what it sounds like is going on from this question is that it sounds like the gentleman who asked it is, is working. His wife's going to be taking on a business as a property manager and she's going to be managing commercial contracts. And he's just concerned do separately. these hours qualify? Yes, yeah, separate. Do these hours qualify towards the real estate professional status because they're not residential? Is like they the use the word commercial contracts, commercial property management contracts. So I think what he's saying, okay, is okay, he's managing because because I just want to clarify because like I've seen in the small business arena, like cleaning crews say commercial contracts. So I just want to make sure that we're talking about actual management of properties. Yeah, commercial property management contracts is what is being said here. Yeah, I mean, I, I presume that it should i mean maybe there's something in those commercial contracts that like isn't property management i don't know just at the risk of you know giving you an answer live where a hundred thousand people listen to that (laughs) but like uh you know i think that which which we've we've crushed it with this podcast you've crushed it with this podcast man i i I gotta stop for a second and just give tom a shout out we have a hundred and forty thousand people 
that download our podcasts on a monthly basis. And a lot of that is thanks to Tom, who way back in 2017 told me, look, if we're going to do this podcast, we got to do it every single week and we cannot miss any time. And I think we only we only ever miss like once a year at Christmas. Right. But every other time we always deliver something. Anyway, hats off to you. So we got we got a lot of people tuning in now. Oh, we have a lot of accountants tuning in now. I get I get like love from the accountant community every once in a while. So anyway, back to this. So commercial property, property management is going to be a real property trader business that will qualify you for the real estate professional status test. So those hours will count. Now you have to own the business at least 5% of the business in order for the hours to count. So if you're just a W-2 and you're working in a property management business owned by somebody else, that time will not count for real estate professional status. But if you fully own the business, you're fine. And then you just have to make sure that you separately materially participate in your own rentals that you own, that you're looking to jump out of the passive bucket and put into the non-passive bucket. I hope that that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. The bottom line is commercial Generally speaking, okay, for everybody out there, commercial property management is a property management business for the purposes of looking to qualify for the real estate professional status. So there you go. If you have any specific questions, go ahead, uh, join in on the conversation. He's actually in the insiders community. So go ahead and uh, if you have any other additional questions, just follow up there. Um, we have another question from the insiders community. It's an age old question. I think we'll take maybe one or two more after this, but this is an age old question and it is, does the short-term rental hours count towards refs Uh-oh. Uh-oh. now this is where we're at be right careful <laughs> we're this is where we're at in this saga okay um and i'm going to break it down so there's two task court cases one of them's uh, bailey versus commissioners 2001 there's another one todd and pamela bailey versus commissioner that's 2011 and in these two task court cases separate baileys unrelated yeah they're unrelated two separate couples this happens to be very similar situations here and in the first case Basically, what was ultimately determined is that the short-term rental business, the short-term rental property, because it has an average stay of seven days or less, is not a quote-unquote rental activity. And because it was not a quote-unquote rental activity, then it did not qualify as a real property trigger business, and therefore, they cannot count the hours towards the real estate professional status. Now, there's the second case in 2011, very similar situation. The person had a short-term rental in their average stay of, I think it was three days, And the IRS actually heavily referenced that first case in 2020, excuse me, 2001. And in that case, it was also determined that the same thing, that because it was not a rental activity, that it did not qualify for real estate professional status. Now, if you want to rely on the task court's interpretations there, then in that case, then the short-term rental business is not a real property trader business. And what is the significance of that? What does that even mean? I I feel like we, we have a lot of new listeners. So yeah. So, so, okay. So basically long story short, there's some people out there, right. Who have long-term rentals, they have short-term rentals and they're looking to qualify as a real estate professional, right? Because they want to take the losses from their long-term rentals against their non-passive income, kind of like we discussed earlier before. So uh, what ends up happening is to qualify as a real estate professional, you spend more than 750 hours and more than half your total working time in a real property trader business. So the long-term rentals are rental activity, which is one of the 11 real property trades or businesses. So that checks the box. If you materially participate in your rental activities, then those hours will count towards the real estate professional status. Now, uh, there's a grouping election found under uh, 1.469-9G where you can uh, aggregate all of your rental activities as one activity for the purposes of establishing material participation. Because if you didn't do that, then you have to materially participate in each one of your long-term rental activities. So many, many taxpayers will make that election and then meet one of those material participation tests we mentioned before on their 
long-term portfolio. However, because short-term rentals with an average stay of seven days or less are not considered quote unquote rental activities, uh, your short-term rentals are not grouped in with your long-term rentals. That means that you have to materially participate in your short-term rentals separately. Now, the reason why this is all being asked here is, okay, so we could agree that they're not rental activities, average stay of seven days or less, fine. That you can't can't count those hours towards your long-term rental material participation hours. However, what that means is basically this, they're not passive per se because they're not rental activities. So if you materially participate in your short-term rentals, then the losses will be non-passive. But the question in question here is, can those short-term rental hours count and help you qualify towards the real estate professional status, right? Is it a real property trader business? And according to the, these two tax court cases, short-term rentals are not real property trades or businesses, and therefore you cannot count it towards the real estate professional status. However, many would disagree with that, and uh, we'll have to see what time brings to us if that actually holds true. We'll have to see. But right now, if you rely strictly on the tax court's opinion and, and with their interpretation, rather, then short-term rental hours do not count towards reps or do that. So, yes, that was a great summary. I want to break it down a little bit simpler for our new listeners. So if you have a short-term rental, you might think automatically that your hours count towards real estate professional status. And again, if you can, if you or your spouse can qualify for real estate professional status, then you can make grouping elections with which Tom started to describe. And you can effectively move your rentals out of that passive bucket and into the non-passive bucket. You can start using cost segregation studies, accelerated appreciation to create large tax losses to offset your income. The problem is that to qualify as a real estate professional, you have to spend 750 hours and more time in real estate than anywhere else, any other job that you might have. So it's 15 hours a week. It takes a significant amount of effort. And so if you have a large long-term rental portfolio, that might be relatively passive and you're able to, you know, log 200 extra hours managing your short-term rental. And that puts you over the 750 hour requirement to qualify as a real estate professional. You might want to be able to say, Hey, my short-term rental should help me qualify as a real estate professional for my entire portfolio. And that is the crux of the question. It's do the hours that I spend managing my short-term rental help me qualify as a real estate professional, which will help the rest of my portfolio? If you only have one short-term rental, it doesn't matter. But if you have a short-term rental in 10 other properties that are long-term rentals or commercial properties, it absolutely can matter because your short-term rental, it's a great area to spend time because short-term rentals are heavier to manage on an ongoing basis. They take more setup. So it would be ideal if that time could qualify for real estate professional status hours, which will help the rest of my portfolio jump out of my passive bucket and into my non-passive bucket. And there's some, you know, you got to make sure you materially participate in your long-term rental portfolio as well. But that's the crux of the question. That's why it's being asked. And that's the simplified explanation uh, as to what's going on here. So Tom correctly explained the two Bailey cases that very clearly say no. He also explained that there are real property trades or businesses. A real estate professional, for real estate professional status, there are real property trades or businesses. And the, we feel that the tax court incorrectly said, well, because a short-term rental is not a, quote, rental activity, and rental activities apply to real estate professional status, then your short-term rental can't apply to real estate professional status. But in reality... The hours that count for real estate professional status 
are related to the 11 real property trades or businesses that are described in section 469. So the question is, a short-term rental is not a rental activity, fine, but is it still a real property trader business that is described in the Treasury Reg section 469-9? And there are varying degrees of opinions out there currently, but like Tom said, time will tell. Time will tell indeed. Time will uh, certainly tell. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly will. With that being said, I think we're going to come up on our last question here. And this, I think this is a good question um, or one that I think will, will help some people out there. So property tax for rental properties. Is there a cap for property tax deductions on rental properties? I purchased a few this year. I'm a beginner. And I heard that you can't deduct more than $10,000. Is that true? Uh, hopefully you didn't hear that from yeah, a qualified yeah. tax professional. Yeah, you didn't hear it from us. Um, <laughs> didn't hear it from us, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think the $10,000 cap you're referring to is the cap on property tax, sales tax, state tax. And I think there's another tax in there that they, that they shoved state in there. Tax. State in- So yeah, so in there, so if you itemize your deductions, right, and your, your state tax and your property tax exceeds $10,000, then you're capped at $10,000. So in other words, if you have... $12,000 in property tax and $20,000 in state tax. So you have a total of $32,000. Guess what? You can only deduct 10. And that's where that cap is. And that's on personal residences, both primary and secondary. So if you do want a vacation home that is considered a residence, that's going to be under that cap. However, on rental properties, you're not capped on your property tax deduction. So in other words, the cap, well, there is a cap. The cap is the amount of your property tax. You can't deduct more than that. So whatever your property tax is on a rental property, you just deduct it. Generally, going to be deducted on Schedule E. There's a nice little box for taxes over there. So that should uh, yeah, be- Rental properties are generally considered a trader business, and you can deduct business expenses related to trader businesses as long as they're ordinary, necessary, current. There's like one other one or something. But- Property taxes are part of operating a real property trader business. So yeah, you can deduct it. There's no $10,000 limit. The $10,000 limit is the salt cap that Tom just described that you would see on Schedule A, which is related to itemized deductions for personal property, like the residence that I own. That is where I report the interest in the property taxes on Schedule A related to my personal residence. Right. And that is capped at 10000 yeah. So yeah, just be mindful of that. It's on residence does not apply to businesses such as your rental activities. So yeah. um, with that being said, I think that concludes our Q&A segment here. If you do want to join in on the conversation, you can go to our Facebook group. Uh, Brandon mentioned it before, or you could sign up and become an insider. www.taxsmartinsiders.com slash free gift. And we're launching this week. So if you're if you're listening to this right now, it means that this is going to be live. So you can go ahead and visit that website, claim your free gift, and join right into the TaxSmart Insiders community. We're going to have a lot of exciting things uh, coming up. Uh, Brandon's going to be hosting the first master class in a few days from now. It's going to be super exciting. Uh, he's going to be going through in-depth on Section 469, uh, going through uh, the basics, covering everything you need to know just to get a general understanding of what's going on, the real estate profession as short-term rentals. And then we're having master classes. Uh, one of them is going to be hosted by Taylor uh, Brugna, who's on the partnership team here at the firm. And he is going to be breaking down and sharing his secrets on how he built his portfolio, how you can manage a remote team, how you could build your team, and the various types of real estate debt. We also have, again, the co-author of 
the Airbnb for Dummies book coming in to do a masterclass on building and scaling a short-term rental activity. And we have a bunch of other really exciting things that are going to be taking place in there. Again, you can get all that information, www.taxmartinvestors.com slash free gift. So go ahead and make sure you check that out. Claim your free gift while supplies last. And we'll see you on the inside. And we'll see you on the next episode of Tax Smart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.